you're in the locker room. Welcome along, welcome back. Uh, brought to you by the Tech Locker, the consultancy that looks to protect your technology investment. Um, episode one did okay. You know, we had a, we had a hundred plus views, something like that. I'll take that on episode one. Um, you know, good good chunk of feedback on this. The audio downloads on Spotify or wherever you get your your podcast from as well. Um, what did I learn from episode one? Uh, I need better Wi-Fi connection. Uh, I need my own recording studio. Um, I need to do a whole bunch of things, really. Uh, I need to talk less, none of which is changing this episode. You, you're welcome. Um, but, you know, a whole bunch of learnings and a whole things to take forward. Um, but we've also got nine confirmed speakers, uh, nine guests to, to join us in the locker room going forward as well, which is massively exciting. So a whole load of interesting facts and, and figures and things coming over sort of coming weeks and months. Um, but... Welcome along, welcome back. If you missed the first episode, go catch up. Uh, like, subscribe, buttons are somewhere around here. Um, you see my logo in the background there. I've, I've done some things to try and tidy myself up, Paul. Um, but Paul is our, our guest today in the locker room. Uh, he's, a, he's an author, he's a marketeer, he's a, he's a speaker. He's, he's got more amazing, fascinating stories in this industry than I can ever aspire to, to have. Um, and he's just generally an all-round lovely bloke. So... Welcome to the locker room, Mr. Paul Randall. Tell us all about yourself. Thanks, Neil. Lovely to be here, and hello to everybody out there in, in interweb world. Um, so, a little bit about me. Um, aged career marketeer, um, so over 30 years plus in the game. Um, and then about five years ago, my daughter walked up to me and completely out of the blue said, Daddy... Is your job good for the environment? And I had no good answer to that. So went off and retrained myself, studied with uh, Cambridge University Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And two things came out of that. One, I was given a whole bunch of tools to interrogate marketing to understand where its environmental sustainable impacts were. And two, found myself in a community of students and when I introduced myself as a marketeer, got this horrible, ooh, aren't, aren't you the problem? Um, and ended up kind of cowering in the corner with like feeling like devil's horns were creeping out of my head um, with only a handful of other marketeers on, on the course. And it kind of gave me two options. One, I get out of marketing and go and become some sort of sustainability assessor or something. Or two, I try and do something about it. So... Then spent a few years working with my co-partner, interrogating and doing lots of research into just how bad marketing is and how complicit marketing is in driving the sustainability challenges we have today. And, you know, pulling no punches, it's shit. Uh, and I can go into the detail of where it's, it's shit um, if, if we have more than 10 hours. Um, but the important thing was like, well, what do we do about it? You know, you know I speak to lots of sustainable least sustainability leads who just say why is marketing still a thing you know they just want it to go they just want the whole discipline to disappear because it just sells stuff that we don't need and that has that's you know that environmental that sustainable impact that that you know that we need to address but marketing has a role you know marketing's very good at capturing hearts and minds very good at changing behavior and that's what we need more than anything at the moment is behavior change it's just at the moment, marketing is pointed at selling stuff rather than actually sustainable behavior change. So that became our mission. You know, how do we turn 
marketing around. Well, that's that's a simple job, right? That's a five minute gig. What are you doing for the rest of the week? Um, so, for the thousands of people who are watching this, clearly, um, you know, in a in a kind of a nutshell, what what defines sustainable marketing? So, sustainable marketing actually does a number of things. One, it recognizes the impact that marketing's had. So marketing's been around for centuries. You know, some academics will say it was invented by cavemen painting on the walls. I think, you know, you know, I can't imagine cavemen painting, you know, painting buy one club or get one free on their cave, but you know, you know, it's been around for a while. But actually got into its modern shape in the 1960s when our capitalist economic model was being laid down. And the, econ- yeah, the, the economists of the time said that we will deliver well-being in society by selling goods that delight customers. And it had two core assumptions in that. One was that you know, we were rational humans who had perfect knowledge. So the marketeers of the time went, excuse me, <laughs> we're rational and we know everything. I don't think that's quite right, um, but we can help. Um, so marketing became the engine of growth by actually kind of like being able to understand the irrational human and motivate them to purchase and actually solving the problem of knowledge. You know, where can I get my new mousetrap? Um, and over the last 60 years has become a $740 billion industry that does that. And the way it's done that has been by building aspirational lifestyles that have become cultural norms. You know, we, marketing actually made it a cultural norm for us to express love through the purchase of a rock. You know, you buy a diamond to prove you love somebody. You know, you don't have to do that. Marketing created that. Marketing created the two-car family. Marketing turned Father Christmas red. You know, marketing created Black Friday. Marketing's created cultural norms and societal aspirations and the way we believe we're allowed to live our lives that are wholly unsustainable. And we've been doing that for 60 years, so they're well bedded into our society. So the first thing Martin's got to do is acknowledge that and, you know, and realise that it's got to help unpick that if we need to move to a sustainable society. It's also got to acknowledge some of its other impacts. A piece of work done by an organisation called the Purpose Disruptors actually took some very genuine attribution methodology in marketing, which says I've done a campaign and I can prove it sold that product. You know, so, you know, that's how good marketing actually works. Um, but they took it one step further. So I did that campaign. I sold that product. That product's got this carbon footprint, which means I've got these advertised emissions. And by doing that analysis in the UK, they identified that advertising contributes 32 percent to the carbon footprint of each and every individual in the UK. Wow, 32%. 32%, and it's going up. When they first did the report, it was 28%. It's now 32%. Wow. People don't realise just how impactful the industry is in driving us in the wrong direction. So sustainable marketing is about acknowledging that first and foremost, acknowledging just how complicit marketing is and the challenges we have. Secondly, it's about changing the mindset and the toolkit of the marketeers 
to actually drive for a sustainable future. In a sustainable future, we still have irrational people with imperfect knowledge. We just need to change their behavior. So the toolkit, the skills, the expertise of marketing needs to be kind of, you know, evolved and maintained. Um, but it needs to be pointed in this new direction towards sustainability. And what we say, you know, through the the model we built, we built a model called the Sustainable Marketing Compass, is his toolkit that allows you to start doing that. And what it doesn't do is provide all the answers. It actually highlights all the, the pockets of, of excellence, you know, like the Purpose Disruptors report that's going on around the industry. But at its heart, what it does is give a new role for marketing. That role that marketing adopted 60 years ago was the engine of growth. Marketing's new role sits in organizations that have commercial targets, because we still have to make money, environmental targets and societal targets. And it sits in the middle, kind of this regulator valve, you know, like, you know, the flight deck of the enterprise, kind of balancing all the controls out to say, if I overcook on my commercial performance, I'll blow my sustainability targets. You know, by driving some of my sustainability goals, I might be disadvantaging a particular part of society. So actually, I can't do that either. And we call it stretching the balloon. You know, the marketeer has got to stretch the resources across those three kind of pillars and those three tensions in a way that delivers a sustainable lifestyle. Which for how, how do we pick that apart? Because um, the, 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 the pressure in current industry and current business, given the emergence of things like AI, you know, you type a question into a AI tool of choice and it gives you your essay. I have to keep it away from, from my lad at high school all the time because it, it just cheats. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of the capability of, of technology, you know, it, it almost gives you a, a, an added impetus to go faster. You know, the whole first to market thing from a business perspective, um, you know, you, you, you've got to be on pace. And that's where marketing, is, is, as you kind of alluded to a moment ago, it's always earned, earned its corn and its stripes because that's what gives you that, that footprint. Um, so does... Does technology become implicit in the problem, the solution, or is it somewhere in between? And is it down to the business to learn how to adopt the right strategy? It's, it's the latter. I mean, it plays in both camps. You know, it's causing massive problems. Um, it also has huge potential to solve things. You know, um, AI has been used in marketing for years and it's increasingly being used in marketing. You know, so, you know, AI has been used to do propensity modeling on whether you would buy a certain product or not. Um, and, you know, early use of those technologies and those algorithms was really diversive and injected loads of accidental bias that nobody wanted to be put in there, but actually drove loads of bias into society. Harvard Business Review um, did a study that actually identified that um, the use of predictive modeling and AI data modeling to kind of understand when you're going to buy a product and therefore allow marketers to give you an offer or something to incentivize to make that purchase, which is used everywhere, uh, you know, in, in e-commerce. Um, Harvard found that actually what those technologies do is look for biobehavioral signals. But actually, the most affluent individuals in society are more comfortable in expressing by behavior signals. They're more happy to go and research on purchasing things because they know if they wanted to afford it, they probably could. The less affluent don't. 
so actually the consequence of that is that those algorithms give a better price to the most affluent individual so you know that's where ai and that's where technology is poorly used um can be very damaging um there's also some horrible places those technologies can go you know there's certain industries um that are very damaging that are struggling to recruit good quality marketeers because people just don't want to work in particular sectors um i'm aware that some of those brands that operate in those sectors are going to the agency community to say i've got millions to invest in ai to automate my marketing so i don't have to recruit people wow. so facilitating you know companies that we don't want to carry on selling to sell that's where technology is a dangerous dangerous tool at the same time it can really really powerful and really really motivating so one of the things we're trying to explore is how we understand the brain print of marketing so you i everybody else watching this probably gets between 4 to 10,000 media impressions a day and the, and 72% of them according to research of those messages are based on what's called inadequacy marketing. Paul, why is your hair so gray? Why haven't you been on the bike today? Why haven't you bought the latest jacket or the latest shoes? It makes you compare yourself against your peers and come up wanting. So four to 10,000 times a day, we're all being told we're not good enough. That has a societal impact on our health and our well-being. And that's been a concept that's been around since the World Wildlife Fund coined it back in the early 90s. The Guardian tried to do something about addressing it, you know, in the early 2000s, but it's never really been tackled at uh, the industry level. AI gets really exciting because what AI could potentially do once appropriately trained is actually analyze all the messages that we're delivering into society and start to quantify where we're being positive and where we're being negative, where we're being biased, where we're being diversive. So actually the industry can start adopting a duty of care and understanding that sort of impact. Now, just previously we haven't been able to do that because it's just such a massive job, but that's where technologies like AI can really start coming in and really start making a difference. You know, the other thing as well is, you know, there's this horrible stat that only 3% of the footage filmed to create ads only ever sees the light, light of day. 3%? 3%. So you've and what's, got the, what's the average cost of running one of those from, uh, from either, I guess, a carbon footprint perspective? But, I mean, yeah, there's all sorts involved in there. 3% seems incredibly low. Yeah, the, the, the whole marketing industry is massively wasteful. You know, if you take a step back, you know, we're the only global industry that can actually celebrate, celebrate being 1% good at what it does. <laughs> is that true? Well, think about it. A marketeer will celebrate a 1% success rate on a campaign. Um, and you can look at lots of different channels, lots of different media. You look into social media, for example, and actually getting a kind of 0.01% conversion rate on your campaign is often a good thing. So when you add up all the different types of channels from out-of-home advertising and direct mail and TV and everything, you roughly get to around about 1%. And marketers are so focused on the optimization of that 1%, they actually ignore the fact that 99% of what they do is wasted. 
you know, it's all down to the, a very famous marketer called John Wanamaker, who coined the phrase, 50% of what I do in marketing, what I spend in marketing is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which 50%. Today, with all our data and all our knowledge and all our kind of like tech prowess, we know exactly what 1% worked, but we're so focused on actually optimizing that 1%, we just ignore the 99% waste. You know, so you, you take, uh, say, for example, direct mail. You, the average carbon footprint of a piece of, of, a, of an email with an attachment on it, like a newsletter, is about 50 grams of carbon. Open rates in the UK for a good, well-targeted um, piece of direct mail can be about 14%. So you'd send that email to a database of 10,000 people, you've wasted 410 kilograms of carbon. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's like, that's scary. Those are scary numbers. And, uh, and so from my perspective, and, and you know, to be completely transparent, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn as much today as, as many other people watching this video. I'd imagine this is, this is not a particular area of expertise, but it is an area of interest. And it, those kind of figures, you know, I've been in this game 25 years and nobody's ever talked about it in the, these kind of terms. And I guess that's what you're saying, that you know, we, we have to do something now before it gets infinitely worse. Paul, you've worked for some major companies in your past, yeah, given some of the numbers you're talking around there and some of the problems and challenges, how aware and how focused are the chief execs on, firstly, I guess, understanding and secondly, looking to address them in a competitive landscape? It's a really good question. Um, and as you would expect, there's no one consistent answer for all the big chief execs. You know, you've got different companies approaching it in different ways um, with different levels of passion and different reasons why they're doing it so you can look at some of the really big organizations such as such as microsoft which are doing a huge amount in this space it's very much a focus it's been there for a long time um and then you've got others that um are having to catch up you know and i think that's always the case in any transformation in industry i think the interesting thing that chief execs are battling with at the moment is that you know, by and large, all the big technology companies have built out some sustainability capability. You know, they've hired the teams, they've got the resource, they've got a strategy in place. But very much like the early days, the digital transformation, you know, that muscle, that capability has been built on the corner of the building in a center of excellence, whilst the rest of the business over here carries on doing the proper business. And actually, we've got to that kind of juncture where the two need to come together, you know, just as digital technologies have become the water we all swim in, um, sustainability has got to become the new water that we all swim in. Uh, and that's where I think the chief execs have their biggest challenges because that forces them to address things like growth with environmental and societal performance. And you'll end up in lots of conversations where people start talking about things like degrowth or green growth or lots of you know circular economy and things of that nature. It's where you take kind of a oh, capitalistic model and say, well, that's not really fit for purpose anymore. And, you know, you know, some estimates say there's like at least kind of 10 different economic models floating around at the moment that chief execs are trying to wrestle with. So it, it's a, it's a fairly big one to, to tackle in that sense. And I guess, um, we, from a startup perspective, if you look at this as a startup, you know, your chief execs are typically, um, those, those classic if X-shaped individuals who try and do a bit of everything and they, they, they tend to 
have to do everything. You know, wear many hats. Startups, yeah. you typically less less available resources, so you tend to have to do a lot of things. Um, so you've got a bit more of an eye and a bit more insight, however however self taught that may be on some of these topics. And your larger corporations clearly have bigger teams uh, who do this, and it's a bit easier to have the wool pulled over your eyes um, in in the sense of I'm leaving my team to do the job, they're telling me it's all fine, they're telling me they're reducing my, my footprint. I did a little bit of reading before we spoke around something called greenwashing, where we're kind of trying to tell the world that everything's fine, we're reducing our footprint, this is a socially responsible product packaging, whatever it may be. So, you know, and and I'm not I'm not comparing the two for a second, but if you look at something like the, the, the betting and gambling industry, where, you know, people have different views as to how ethical those, those uh, kind of online services are, and that's a challenge to to market is a challenge to, to bring people along the, the journey there. Does it not almost create a similar uh, half, a, half a sideways look at all industries when we're saying something about how socially responsible we are and our products and services are? Um, has it added a layer of cynicism that's going to be just as hard to battle as the problem itself? Um, I'd agree. You know, I think greenwashing is a, a mm-hmm. massive issue. Um, you know, but being very, very honest about greenwashing, the majority of it is accidental. You know, it's because you're in a scenario where, you know, you have a very complex topic in sustainability. You know, how you reduce your carbon, how you reduce waste and impact. It gets really technical really quickly. And the marketing community, you know, is woefully behind on its knowledge and its understanding of sustainability, especially in the agency community, you know organizations may have had a sustainability environmental policy strategy for like a couple of decades because legislation's told them to do so the marketing team's probably not paid any attention apart from a bit of csr reporting and the agency world's had nothing to do with it you know and all of a sudden they're being asked to communicate these green messages and green credentials and they're just getting it wrong you know the the cma the competitive markets authority in the uk put out the greenwashing code a year or so ago and its research indicated that 42% of all green claims in the UK are spurious or incorrect. Um, so green, greenwashing kind of has become a real pandemic in its own right. It's a real issue. As a result, your legislative bodies, you know, like the EU and the, and the UK and most countries around the world are putting legislation in place to stop it. So very recently, as a matter of weeks ago, the EU announced its new legislation on the phrases you can or can't use. So, for example, you can't use carbon neutral. There is no such thing. You know, so actually where you see products like, you know, packet of falafel or saying it's carbon neutral or you can fly carbon neutral, you know, to be perfectly honest, that's bollocks. You can't. You know, if you're on a plane, it's belching out aviation fuel out the back of it. What's carbon neutral about that? You may have planted a few trees, but that's elsewhere. You know, so the... The way that the marketing industry has kind of been trying to message around sustainability is just wrong. And legislation's come in to put guidelines around that. Now, they've come with some severe penalties. Um, so, you know, and compare this to GDPR, right? You know, GDPR world, you know, just as much as I do. It's like when GDPR came out, everybody was scared silly about it i mean i must have been trained four times on it to make sure i didn't fall foul of it um because it was four percent of global turnover 
you know, that was the fine that could be levied on you. you know, the UK will fine you 10% of global turnover if you get caught greenwashing. Wow. Yet, yet the industry isn't in a massive panic to train everybody. It's just kind of obliviously bumbling through. Now your, your chief marketing officer is scared silly of this. And actually, there's some research done by Forrester that indicates something like 90% of chief marketing officers want to talk about the sustainability credentials of their organization, but don't because affairs have been caught greenwashing. So we now have something called green hushing, where companies are not talking about it, which is arguably more damaging because, you know, at least when we're talking about green products, it puts it in the mindset of the shopper that I got, I've got a, a sustainable version to consider. Now, whether that's message rightly or wrong, it's driving that purchase consideration. Take that away from the mindset of the shopper and they're not going to carry on buying from a sustainable point of view. So it actually acts as an anchor on our transition to a sustainable world. So greenwashing, green hushing is a massive issue. You know, you've got other variants of that coming in, you know, so everybody's been talking about carbon, you know, and, and having your carbon footprint. Biodiversity is rapidly becoming as an important topic to consider. If you read any of David Attenborough's books, just what we've done to the, the, the biodiversity on the planet is horrendous. So actually how we address biodiversity and how organizations address biodiversity is, is going to become as important as the carbon footprint. Um, so we're going to be in an era of biodiversity washing. You know, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is going to get very, very difficult for people <laughs> to comprehend. It. It's like if the, if the people who are living and breathing this stuff, if they're terrified as to what to say and what not to say, yeah, where, where do the rest of us stand? So I guess, yeah, and, and you, you've touched on the, the compass a couple of times and, and, and providing frame, frameworks and toolkits for, for, to, to help drive the, the change. I guess, you know, the two-part question. One, uh, how, how exactly do we evoke that kind of change? Is, is it a bit like one of those IT security questions? It's everybody's responsibility. We all have a part to play in this. But how do we evoke change, presumably, from the top down in all of these organizations? Otherwise, it won't happen. Um, and, and secondly, where's, where's the movement? What kind of scale of the movement is the movement at at the moment? Because, you know, with the greatest of respect, you and the people you work with can't change the world. Uh, so how 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 big a movement is this? Yeah, very good question. I mean, I think the first question it's carrot and stick, um, you know, and that which one you deploy depends on you know where you're talking in an organisation and the organisation, you know, and even down to you or I how we respond to sustainability. You know, for some individuals, they're only going to change behaviour when you scare the pants off them. You know, where you talk about the doom and gloom and the kind of end of the world sort of scenarios um for others it's well there's a commercial opportunity in here for others it's more of a um you know altruistic thought on doing the right thing and you have to tune your messages to the right individuals to get them to change their behavior and to move forward and you know i think that's where a lot of sustainability has got it wrong you know the scientists of this world are awesome community of individuals they're very good at scaring the pants off us. Uh, and as human beings, 
we get scared to a point and then we bring our own defensive barriers in to start ignoring, you know, ignoring that. And it's kind of like we've all seen all the fires and all the floods and everything coming through the news on a daily basis. After a while, you, you kind of get blind to it, you know, so, you know, you, there's no one consistent approach there. It's it's definitely kind of like how do each individuals and organizations respond to different stimuli? That scenario who do you who do you look at and go you, you've you've got like decades worth of change ahead of who do you worry for most industry-wise i guess that's a, that's a really good question i mean i think a way to think about that is where can you have the most impact and the biggest change um you know there's lots of wonderful startups we're talking about small startups and stuff like that and i speak to loads of startups loads of tech startups that are B Corp, right from the start, sustainable right from the start. They're very purpose-centric in exactly what they do, and they're doing wonderful work. Um, but their impact's quite tiny because they're a small startup, you know, unless they become the unicorn and grow and that sort of thing. Um, the other end of the scale, you've got the oil and gas companies this world. But despite all their kind of greenwashing, and they kind of invented greenwashing, um, are pulling in the wrong direction. You know, so your shells, your ExxonMobil's are this sort of world that are kind of supposedly moving to, you know, sustainable futures, but are actually divesting away from their renewable strategies. You know, it was only yesterday, I think, that Shell said that, you know, it got a whole strategy around um, sustainable hydrogen. And actually, it's laying off a whole percentage of the people in that team now and reinvesting back in other areas. You know, so you've got companies that are the most damaging on the planet, pulling in the wrong direction and using greenwashing and lobbying to make it look like they're doing the right things. Then you've got the middle ground where you've got companies that have been running traditionally, have impacts, have some, you know, substantial big impacts, you know, FMCG, manufacturing, stuff like that, but want to do the right thing and want to transform. And they're the ones where you can have the biggest impact. They're the ones where you can get the biggest scale. And it means that you kind of have to go in and acknowledge them kind of impactful at the moment. But how do you move them forward and how do you make that transition as quick and effective as possible? And it leads you into some really interesting conversations at the, the Net Zero Festival last year. I watched a fascinating debate where some people were exploring this and saying, actually, we shouldn't be investing in startups. We, you know, we should be investing in Coke to help them take plastic bottles out of their manufacturing. And that feels counterintuitive because it's like, they're rich. Why are we having to invest in them? <laughs> but actually, you know, if you take that out of the equation and say, we've just got to stop their impact now because we're running out of time, you half see the point. I mean, it is down to them to change. But actually, that's where we're going to get the most scale and impact by those big legacy industries really getting their act together. Yeah, I think I think interestingly, my TV in the background has been listening to this and is now trying to turn itself off. Uh, <laughs> Please stop wasting energy and turn me off. So yeah. one second, um, it was it suddenly occurred to me as we were talking there actually that you know the, the, a couple of the comments will be, but you've got a TV burning in the background, so you know that's not cool. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot clearly a lot to do here, and and you know you you. you um, let's say you, you, you're on a bit of a mission as much as you can in order to inform, to educate. Uh, and are you speaking at an event coming up to uh, on this on this topic, Paul? 
Yeah, yeah, we're, we're speaking at the Net Zero Festival, the, the one um, this year. Um, we were at the Blue Earth Summit a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we're getting out as much as possible. I mean, your, your second question is like, how can a small community of people make the change and is that community getting bigger? Um, the, the, the good news is it is getting bigger. You know, um, the, the compass model that myself and my co-partner founded, you know, we pitched back into Cambridge University, uh, the Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Um, they've used it in their new course on sustainable marketing. And I sit on the advisory panel for that and assess on it. So I actually see on a daily basis, student after student after student going through this this learning curve. So we're seeing the community get bigger. You know, we put the, the sustainable marketing compass out as an open source framework. So anybody can use it you know it's not something you say you've got to pay us to actually use it um and we've seen more we had seven hundred and fifty thousand people view it on within 24 hours when we launched it so there's a passion you know there's there's a movement is it the scale we need and is it the pace we need no absolutely not and you know you'll see the un and the ipcc and everybody kind of cracking the whip you know to get things moving forward and that's where you know some of the alarm bells from our uk government on relaxing and taking their foot off the accelerator is highly alarming um from that point of view and you almost have to ignore those government messages and double down on your commitment to driving change but it is getting bigger it is becoming more the norm um you know i think We've got a long way to go, but you have to remain optimistic. You know, Paul Polman, kind of who leads a lot in this space, says it, it's too late to be pessimistic. <laughs> um, I love that. I've heard that before. That's a great one. Which I've kind of got written down on the corner of my desk because it's so easy to get depressed and pessimistic about this stuff, you know, and if we are, we'll give up. So yeah. we are getting bigger, we are getting faster, we are getting better. You know, it's two steps forward, one step back, but it is too late to be pessimistic. What a great quote. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull that. That could well be on the, the teaser reel, because uh, I think that's that's a really important message. And there's there's a lot of those in here. Um I'll I'll post a link to the compass if you don't mind, um uh, as well as the next comments of this feed. Um and likewise your your book, which is available for, for pre order, which um, again, starts to, to educate and advise and, and point people in, in the direction we should all be moving in. Um, that's th there's some really horrifying numbers in there. You can't get away from that. And and you know, I think, I think like you just touched on, it, it is kind of all of our responsibilities to to help uh, turn the tide on this and to uh, to, to win hearts and minds and, and uh, start to take those steps forward. Um, there is almost something encouraging about not being able to take a step backwards, really, from where we are. You know, you have to go forward. It's kind of a better place to be, I guess. Um, takes out some of the apathy uh, from from some people's uh, perspective. Um, I guess what's your what's your big wish? You know, if you have, you have one wish uh, on your Christmas list for this, what what would your one big wish be? Um, it starts with the individual, right? Um, you know, we've been thinking about this a lot. You know, you, you can rely on big tech finding all the solutions to kind of capturing carbon out of the atmosphere. You can rely on governments to put legislation in place to stop certain things happening and things. Um, yes, yeah, and, and they are absolutely needed. But actually, 
it all starts with personal commitment to being on the right side of history. Um, and if everybody kind of ponders between now and Christmas and that New Year's resolution is in my personal life and in my work life, and for most people, their work life's more impactful than their personal life, I'm going to be on the right side of history. And I'm going to spend that first few months of January figuring out which side, which side am, I, am I on at the moment. Um, you know, so if everybody on the planet did that, that would be massively impactful. My um, Alexis, my co-founder, has this great phrase. It's kind of like, it's just one plastic straw, said 8 billion people. And I can't, I can't think of a, of a better and more powerful statement to, uh, to kind of draw this one to, to a close. Paul, this has been hugely informative. I've, I've scribbled down a whole bunch of things that I did not know before this session. Um, I think a lot of us have to take something away from this, even if it's just you know, that one straw. That, those are hugely powerful statements and you know, something that I think we all definitely have to get behind. When I'm talking to senior leaders in business around the tech strategy, typically you, know, you try and broaden that out so that it has uh, much more of a, of a reach than just which operating system and which cloud provider should I use. It's, it's very much more um, holistic than that. Uh, and, and from this perspective, you, you certainly sharpen my pencil uh, around the, the types of conversations that I'll, I'll be looking to, to engage in. Um, last question. Uh, this is the locker room. What's in your locker, Paul, that's made you successful over the years? Um, that's a really good question. I'd love to say it's my bike, but then I was completely failed when it came to being a competitive cyclist. Um, so that's not in there anymore. Um, I think for me, you know, the thing I've always had in my locker room is the ability to stitch things together, is an ability to kind of take the step back and say, well, here's a whole bunch of dominoes that are connected, and if that one's going to go down, all these are going to go down. Um, and that's been really important in my sustainability journey because all things in sustainability are connected to each other. So actually, you know, I'd probably say the thing that's in my locker room is a box of dominoes <laughs> um, because it keeps reminding me that everything has, has a knock-on effect. And, I love that. And, and you have to be aware of them. Um, you also need to know when to put the brake in. Yeah, you know, I, I always remember watching those videos of like the dominoes going down, you know, the big domino arts where they knock them all down and things. Yeah. And it's like when they're building them, they have to put the brakes in, otherwise somebody's going to knock one over accidentally and the whole lot's going to go down. So, um, you know, you need to be aware of the, of the cascade, but also where to stop it. That's, that's superb. And, and uh, Lee Summerfield in episode one spoke of his ability to be patient. I would imagine that that's played its part in your career as well in terms of some of the scale of change that you've looked to deliver. Yeah, yeah. Timing's very interesting, actually, because... Um, this is where the sustainability community feels at odds with the rest of commerce. You know, sustainability, you're talking epochs, you know, it's kind of sustainability talks about moving from the Haleocene into the Anthropocene. You know, this isn't like from one year or one decade into another. This is from kind of the last 10 million years into the new epoch. Um, and, you know, marketeers think about real time. So, so yes, yeah, so time's interesting, and you know it's, you have to really kind of take the step back when you're considering sustainability, um, and think long term and big impacts and things. So you know that's time's an interesting dimension. 
uh, once again, that really kind of sharpens the mind on exactly what we're working with here. It's, it's almost like you've done marketing before. Um, thank you. There's <laughs> one, one thought, and we often start our training courses off with this, is that we start off by saying, asking people, what time is it? And, and we bring it back to this point that actually, you know, the whole of the planet that's been around for billions of years moved from one epoch to the new epoch, which people are calling the Anthropocene, in about 1962. So what are the chances of us being alive when the Earth has gone through such a pivot? And it's, it blows thoughts around the millennium completely out of the water. You know, we're talking billions of years here. And the reason why we've made that move is because the most powerful transformative force on the planet that's dictated this shift into the Anthropocene has now become man. And actually that's happened over the last 50 years. You know, you know, that's the one thing to take away, you know, from sustainability is just how impactful we are, that we've actually changed the planet. And the, there's definitely no escape from that. Um, well, the, you plenty to reflect on in, in this one. Um, yeah. I, my head's swimming with all of the things you've just given me some really impactful statements that I think we all need to hear whether we like them or not we all need to, to hear um, quite how big a part we play as individuals as humans as man um, you know in the broader sense um, and from a business and commerce perspective you know what is it that we should be thinking about we can't stick our fingers in, in our ears and cover our eyes this is this is a thing we've got to we've got to tackle this um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of that I'll, um, I'll post uh, links to your, your book, which is available for pre-order, um, the uh, event that you're speaking at shortly, and also to the, uh, to the Compass, so people can delve into all of those at, at their leisure and, and take a look. Um, like, subscribe the videos to make sure that you keep up to pace with this video and, and everything else, whether you watch us on YouTube, whether you listen to us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and I'll be doing the, on Spotify only, uh, I'll be doing the uh, reflection video where I somehow try and piece together all of my thoughts after all of that and reflect back on what I've taken from this really fascinating uh, time with, with yourself, Paul. So thanks again for giving that up. Um, until next time, uh, catch everybody in the locker room with our, with our next fascinating guest. Take care, guys.